Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the, the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're somebody that's uh, new to Crosspoint, uh, my name is Jamie, and it's my great privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. It's my joy as well to get to open up the scriptures with you all. So again, thanks for gathering. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting us into your living room or wherever you happen to be tuning in from. And so Really grateful to get into uh, week two of a series we began last week because we want to continue. This is the unfortunate thing, right? Like Christmas, not knocking Christmas, it's good, so just hang tight with me for a moment, right? But like Christmas, like you get all this lead up to it and gets multiple weeks and like Easter, it tends to be like it's here one day and then we kind of move on. But historically, like in the church calendar, this season of Eastertide, all right, and that we get to continue to reflect that the tomb is still empty, all right, and so this Easter celebration continues, and so last week, then we began this series called Rise, where we get to examine what does it look like for the resurrection power to continue to be at work as we await the second coming of Jesus, how does that infuse this moment, like this life with meaning and purpose and, and hope and all of the, those things. And so we're going to be journeying together through First Thessalonians, this great letter. And so that is the plan today is to get into week two. We did a bit of an introduction last week. And so in case you weren't here, I mean, you can always go online and listen to that. But just know this, that Paul has helped plant this church in this influential city called Thessalonica. And he is literally, after a matter of weeks or maybe a few months, uh, he has run out of town. This riot forms him and the guys that he's planted the church with, like they have to flee. And we get this letter because he is away from them, all right? And so he's gotten word about how they're doing. And so he responds in this letter because he's a good pastor and he cares about this group of people and he's writing to them to encourage them. He's got some things that'll challenge them with as we get further into the, the letter. But there is just this posture of thanksgiving. There's this reminder of how the gospel is at work. And really what we have here in this opening chapter that we're gonna get into this morning, I think in many ways is like this diagnostic of what does it look like to be a healthy, genuine, flourishing Christian at one level. But again, Paul's not writing to just isolated individuals. He's writing to a church. And so to zoom out and actually say, what does it look like to be a healthy, genuine, flourishing, gospel-centered, like missional church community? And so he gives this, this, these opening verses that are like, it starts out, as we'll see, with just this prayer. And he's, he's thanking God for this particular group. And I want us to press in this morning to see, hey, the things that Paul writes to this church if you are in Christ, here's the reality. These things are true about us here this morning. And what does it look like to be the church in this time where we await the coming again of Jesus? And yet we are already in this time, in this place where there's this whole new reality. When Jesus bursts forth from the tomb, there's now this new creation. And we are part of that, like right here and right now. And so this morning, I want us to consider this. What does a healthy church look like? And to help us with that, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 2 through 10. So I want you to have God's word in front of you. You do not need to hear my thoughts or opinions or any of that. The power is in God's word, all right? It's not in my explanation or illustrations or any of those things as much as hopefully those things can be helpful. The power is in God's 
word. And so as I read this, there are Bibles that are in the pews this morning. You can grab one of those, take one of those home with you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to provide that for you. You can also, there's a QR code there in the pew. You can scan that and it'll bring up a little menu where you can click sermon notes. The text is there, the space to take notes um, as well. So at thisiscp.church, you'll, you'll find that. But let me go ahead and read this text. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. This is God's word. We looked at verse 1 last week, so we pick it up here in verse 2. Paul writes this. We give thanks to God, always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, look at how this, this starts. Paul right, writes these words in verse two. Like He's got just this exuberant spirit, not because everything's perfect. It's not because the Thessalonian church has got everything you know, perfectly in place and they're just amazing. And, you know, but, he's, but he's just so caught up in like how amazing Jesus is and the gospel that brings this transformation. He's like, we, thank, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And so we see the heart that Paul has. And friends, let this remind us more than just the heart of a pastor to his people some 2,000 years ago, but like, but God's heart for us this morning, that may we marvel at the love that God has for us. And so you see, again, there's this, I, I give thanks to God. Like Paul is like, this is amazing. It's a miracle that there's this new church in Thessalonica. And friends, that same disposition, it should be characteristic of like us here this morning. Like if you're in Christ, and the person next to you is in Christ, like there's this thing that should just blow our minds. It's like, wow, like we have been rescued, we've been saved, we've been ushered into this whole new reality. And so praise God for that. G.K. Beale in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, the theologian said it this way, and he comments on what we tend to give praise for, particularly in church and ministry circles, contrast with what Paul gives praise and thanksgiving for. He says, too often, churches today tend to give thanks only for visible and quantifiable realities, such as a new building, an increase in membership, and an increase in giving. Paul gives thanks for more unquantifiable realities, such as faith and love and hope, which are needed to inspire good works on the visible level. So we can praise God for the ways that God provides, like our material needs. He gives us a space to to meet in all of that. So praise God for those things. 
but let's not lose sight of the mission. Like this gets to the heart of the matter even every week as we all gather as the church. Like the thing that I've been saying now for some 14 years is thanks for bringing the church into this space. Now it used to be a YMCA gymnasium. Now we're in a sanctuary. We've traded out, you know, basketball hoops for stained glass. But at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter is the church is the people of God gathered to worship God on this mission that God has sent us. And so the end of the day, that's what we're thankful for. We get to be part of this. And so as we get into now verse three through the the rest of the chapter, here's what I want to look at. Paul begins to lay out for us this picture of how the gospel transforms. So like, what are the gospel traits of a healthy church? And what kind of power then is needed to bring these traits about? So we want to look at gospel traits. We want to look at gospel power. And then what will make hopefully more sense at the end, we want to talk about gospel gossip, which doesn't seem to go with gospel, right? Uh, But believe me, it does after John Stott explains it toward the end of the sermon. Okay, so we'll get there in just a moment. But um, and by a moment, I mean lots of minutes, but here we go, all right? So uh, gospel traits, let's look at a few of these, these verses and see what begins to take place in this community. And it has to start, though, before we look at any of it, it's rooted in what it's stated at the beginning of verse five. Paul writes this, our gospel, saying, The good news of Jesus, our gospel, this declaration came to you. So none of the things that we're going to talk about in this, as far as gospel traits, make any sense. They're not things that we can conjure up on our own. He's saying they're a result of this gospel. And it is not, friends, here's what we need to make sure we're understanding. He's saying there has been this declaration that Paul and Timothy and other servants of the Lord, they got to bring this particular word. Like in a day and age where Caesars and kings, that they would go off to battle and somebody would come as a herald to declare that a victory has been secured, right? They come bringing certain good news We now, Paul is saying, we're the heralds that got to go into Thessalonica and declare Jesus has won. He died the death that you and I should have died. He conquered Satan, sin, and death by rising again on the third day. There's this whole new world. Easter continues. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Like all of that, Paul is saying that good news, that objective reality has literally changed everything. We live in an entirely new age now. And so in that time, when the Caesars would have declared that they were the ones bringing the good news, they were bringing the the peace of Rome, which basically looked like this. Hey, you either bow the knee to Caesar, you declare that Caesar is Lord, you embrace that pseudo good news, or we will kill you. That's how they ushered in supposed peace. Now we have this one and a group of people following the way of Jesus that are declaring, no, no. It's not that Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And there's this good news, they are heralds. Like everything flows out of this objective reality. The gospel changes everything. So if you hear anything this morning, just remember that. Like that's what it is. This is not a call for us to like pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Let's get better, let's double down, let's be a healthy church. We're gonna do this on our own. It's like, no, how does the gospel transform us into a healthy church? It is not good advice. We need to get that through our head, right? It's not that there's not wisdom and advice and things in the scriptures, but the big E on the I chart is the gospel is news, not advice. 
You're not here, all right, to get three steps to, you know, peace or seven steps to this healthier life or whatever. And what we're going to read in here is not good advice about how to attain these things. What is included in here, what is trumpeted in here, what is the resounding thing Paul talks about is this. It's a group of people that are being transformed by what has objectively, historically happened. And so the gospel came to you. Now look with me at verse 3 then. It says this, remembering before our God and Father, Paul speaks of faith, he speaks of love, and he speaks of hope. Your work of faith your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This triad, these three things, faith, love, hope. Paul speaks of these throughout his letters. This is not the only time he would speak of these things. Sometimes they are in a different order. If we start with the the last one here that he mentions is hope, and look how it's described. There's the steadfastness of hope. He's writing to a group of people that we looked at this last week, had to feel a bit disoriented, all right? Their pastor, their leader had just been run out of town. There's this riot. They don't know what's gonna take place. But he's saying, listen, the gospel, what has historically happened means that there's this whole new reality and they now have this hope. It's not wishful thinking. It is grounded in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his promised return. And it's producing this steadfastness. And so in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, I don't know all the particulars of what you brought in here this morning, but I know enough of the human condition and the plight and the world we we live in that there are things that are going on. And he's saying the gospel brings this sort of steadfastness, this hope, all right? And there's also this call, as it says, a labor of love, that as we are being transformed, it results in love for one another, love for God, certainly, but love for our neighbor. I mean, you can't read the letters of Paul and not hear over and over again the call to one another, that we belong to one another, to rejoice with one another, to weep with one another, right? Like this calling to be the church to one another. And the church in Thessalonica, not perfectly, but but he's saying, I praise God because this is happening. And then if we look again, what it said regarding faith, this work of faith, which I think at times can be confusing because faith, sometimes we can just think of it as, yes, here are the doctrines of our faith. As important as those things are, right? Like you should pay attention to what does the church teach and what do they believe? But we have to acknowledge it is possible to check those boxes. It is possible to give sort of intellectual assent to like, yep, I believe that, I believe that, and yet not have our hearts fully surrendered. It's possible to know the doctrines, like I said, of our faith and not necessarily be fully trusting, like still holding back. There's a story that I'm guessing many of you have have heard some variation of, and it has to do with uh, this particular place. Um, I'm guessing most of you can recognize this, right? You're like, oh, that's my backyard. No, it's Niagara Falls, right? Um, And perhaps you visit there. I have never gone there myself. I'm guessing some of you here in the room have actually, you know, stood uh, there, or maybe you've been on one of those boats, or maybe you watch The Office where they go to the Niagara Falls. I don't know what it is, right? Um, but you have some awareness of that, is my guess. And it's just this massive thing, right? Um, well, back in 1859, uh, there was this man, this, this Frenchman named Charles uh, Blondin, all right? And he, in the winter, I believe, of 1858, happened to see Niagara Falls for the first time. And he was mesmerized and he was captivated by it, as one would be. Except the difference between you and me and Charles, 
who he was captivated by it, and we might be enamored and captivated by it, he was like, hey, I think I should string up a two-inch rope across the span of Niagara Falls, and I want to walk across it on this tightrope. That thought would never occur to me. I'm guessing it wouldn't occur to you. I don't recommend it, right? Do not try this at home type of thing. But for Charles Mundine, this is something that he was into. In fact, he is this sort of daredevil. He would do these sort of things. He traveled with this troupe, and they would, they would go and perform these, these feats of daring. But nothing ever quite like this. And so in 1858, as he sees this, he at least exercises some wisdom. He's like, you know what? I probably shouldn't attempt this in the winter, all right? So he comes back in the summer, and somehow word gets out. Like, the old pamphlets are printed up. I mean, think about it. There's no social media. He's not trending on Twitter. Like, none of this stuff is, is happening, right? There's no way to share, you know, come out to the Charles Blundine, you know, imminent death uh, fanfare night, right, um, on Facebook. Like, there's none of that that's happening. And yet, people start arriving in droves for the day that has been set aside where he is going to attempt to walk across on a tightrope across this massive opening. So he's going to span that, right? At least that's what he thinks. And so people are there. I think it does communicate something interesting about us as humans, too. Like, let's go see. This guy's probably not going to make it. It's like, wait, what, what is wrong with us? But anyway, um, and so they gather. And it's estimated that some 25,000-plus people gathered, some on the Canadian side, some on the, the American side, right? But there's this massive crowd. And my guess is some of you probably heard of this. Here's a, a photo from uh, that day as he began to make his way across Niagara Falls, across that, that opening, spanning the river. And he's balancing and all of that. Now, one of the things as I read up on this guy that I thought was just fascinating, there are a number of things that were fascinating, uh, but one was as they tried to make the rope particularly taut, right, um, they weren't able to actually get close, or they weren't actually able to get far enough because of the distance that it was, so the center it was relatively tight, right, but then it drooped in the center, and people were like, there is no way, regardless of what it's strung up over, like, there's no way you're going to be able to balance on that. But him, in a supreme act of confidence, he got his little balance bar out there, right? And he began one foot in front of the other, and he made his way. And the crowd is just like on pins and needles, right? I mean, that you can just imagine being there and like, what is happening? And you hear the roar of the falls, and it's, it's windy and gusty and cold water spraying. I mean, like all of this stuff is very, very intense. And he gets about the halfway point, and then he stops, these are some of the details I didn't know, all right? And this guy, not only was he just a daredevil, but just like the level of sort of like showmanship and bravado and all of this, and he stopped halfway through, and he got a rope out, all right? And he began lowering the rope to a boat that was down below, and somehow was able to communicate to this boat down below for them to attach a bottle of wine to the rope, and then he hoisted it back up, uncorked it, and began drinking some wine halfway through. It's like, this guy's like next level, just insane, right? Or he just really loves his wine, I'm not sure, right? So, and then he made it to the other side, and then proceeded to walk back, and people were just in awe. And he came back several times over the next few weeks doing this, each time just kind of upping the ante, right? He ended up walking across it backwards. He ended up doing it blindfolded, like literally with like this black sheet kind of like pulled over his head. Um, it said that at times he could do like some somersaults um, as he went across this. I don't know how this is feasible. Uh, he also said, hey, do you guys think I can make it with stilts? And he went on stilts and went uh, across. And so just crazy, 
right? The other one that I, I have no idea how this, this, I don't know how any of it happened to be honest, but this thing in particular, there was a point where he strapped to his person, like on his back, some sort of like oven griddle type thing, and he got halfway out, cracked open some eggs and made an omelet and enjoyed that, all right, before he made his way across. So it's just insane. And then perhaps a portion of the story you've heard before, I'm guessing, if you've ever heard of this guy, is as he made his way, you know, he's getting ready to go, he actually, from one side to the other, he pushed a empty wheelbarrow across this, right? So he got the, the one wheel up there and he's pushing it, all right? And as he got to the side where the crowd was gathered, they're applauding, they're erupting, they're ooing and eyeing, all of that. He said, do you think I can have a person get in the wheelbarrow and push them across? To which the crowd responded with a resounding, yes. I mean, they'd seen and they'd witnessed, they'd heard everything that he had done. And so they had absolute ultimate confidence and they yelled out, yes, and they cheered. And then Charles Blandine asked, who wants to go? And in that moment, it's just like crickets. Nobody would get in the wheelbarrow. And this illustration, again, showcases the reality. It's possible to intellectually say, I believe that. Yeah, you can do it. I believe you can carry a person across that in a wheelbarrow. I believe you'll be safe. I believe all of that. But when it comes down to, will I surrender myself to this person and allow him to push me across this chasm here. Nobody is willing. And what Paul is saying here to this new church, this fledgling church, this church that doesn't have a lot of things figured out, but they've experienced the impact of the gospel, he's talking about this work of faith. Like there's this, this labor. It's not that they're working for their faith. He's saying there is this surrender. There's this trust that's been brought about. They're looking at the story of Jesus and they're seeing what he did and how he loved and how he cared and they're feeling loved and cared for. And there is this sense after his resurrection, he really has conquered. Circumstances will not have the final say. Death can't even hold him back. And so there's this willingness, in essence, to say, yeah, I'll get in the wheelbarrow. Like, that's the safest possible place for me to be, is surrendered fully to the will of God. Now, it might seem terrifying from our perspective, right? And we wrestle with that. But Paul is commending them. He's saying, look at what's happening. Look at the, the fruit that the gospel is bringing forth. Look at these gospel traits, so he continues, verse six, we get some other descriptions. It says this, and you became imitators of us, Paul writes, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So he's looking at it and saying, and we'll look at this more closely at the end, but he's like, man, in this massive area, this little church in the middle of this big metropolitan city of over 100,000 people at the time, like word is getting out. And he's saying, you became imitators of me. And Paul, not in an arrogant way, but he's calling people like, follow me as I follow Christ. Like, what does that surrender? What does that wheelbarrow sort of life look like? And, and Paul is seeking to, to live that out, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, the same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is present in us as believers, if you're in Christ. And he's saying, you're becoming imitators of us and of the Lord. You're being molded and shaped. Praise God for that. But also part of this imitation is they know, right? 
They know their, their pastor, their, their leader. They know the one that helped bring the gospel to them was run out of town. They know the affliction that he's dealt with. And it tells us in verse, uh, verse 6, you receive the word in much affliction. And yet even in the midst of affliction, there is a joy. And so as we look at the descriptions here, it's like, hey, you're imitators. You're also joyful receivers of the word. They're not trying to achieve their life. They're trying to receive from God. We spend all of our time and energy in this mode of achievement. And Jesus is saying, hey, why don't you receive from me? Why don't you receive my righteousness? Why don't you receive my Sabbath rest? Why don't you stop trying to achieve and rather rest? Why don't you abide in me? And so there's this, there are these joyful receivers, and it tells us they became examples. Like God is using them in such a way, not because they're perfect, It's not to put the eyes on the Thessalonians and worship them, but they are examples to other people about what it looks like when the gospel takes root. And I love this idea of joyful receivers, as hard as that is, because they're saying, listen, they're not naive. They're not immune to pain. They had their difficulties. They know that their, their leader in Paul was run out of town. But more than that, they know that their ultimate leader, that is Jesus, was literally taken out of town. He was put on a cross, crucified, died, not for any sins that he had committed, but for our sins, and then rose again three days later. Like That's their ultimate leader. And they know that if God can use the death of his own son to bring about redemption, there's this growing awareness then that whatever they're facing, God is at work, even in the pain and the hardship. And friends, what was true for them and that truth that they were leaning into, may we lean into that this morning. That you and I, I'm sure you've got doubts. I'm sure you've got things in your life that are confusing and hardship and and affliction. But know this, like God is at work. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon who said this, I have learned to, he says this, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The waves come, the difficulties come, the unexpected things begin to happen, right? And to have, it's not like Spurgeon is like, I love pain, right? Like bring it on, but rather it's like, I have learned He's like, I've learned to embrace that, to receive that, to kiss the way. Why? Because when rightly understood, it throws us onto the rock of ages. Not the rocks that will destroy us, right? But rather, it brings us, it presses us in more closely to our Savior. None of us would ever ask for or wish for or desire like suffering and pain. And yet, I think if we had a conversation, I think all of us who are in Christ would also testify to the fact that the times of most growth, of most transformation, of most like feeling the presence of the Lord is in that time of affliction. And this is what they're beginning to experience. And then look with me at verse 9. It says this, as we drop down, we get some more descriptions. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We'll talk about the first part of verse 9 in a moment. But that language there. This idea of turning, right? It means you're moving in a particular direction. The Bible speaks of this as repentance. And it's a gift, and all of life is to be one of repentance. 
He's saying when you turn from these idols, you now are able and you're freed up. Your hands are no longer full of these things of the world that we've elevated, but you're actually now free to use what the Lord has given you to, to serve, to serve God, to serve the community he's placed you in. And I love how it speaks of this. Again, it's the hope that they have to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Like, Paul never got over this. I mean, this is what he continues to come back to. If there's no resurrection, then we are to be pitied. We are fools. We might as well just, he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for we're going to die, right? Like, that's it. This life is all that there actually is. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But what he's saying is, no, we're a group of people who know that Jesus was raised from the dead, right? And that we actually have nothing to fear. Like the disposition of this community is not like, oh goodness, like when Jesus comes back, we are in for it, right? Like maybe you, you know, growing up, right? And maybe a parent said, oh, you, you wait till your dad gets home or something, right? Like, like that sort of thing. It's like, no, 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 no. Like there is this, there's this expectancy that's like, oh my goodness. Like I can't wait for this because they know Jesus is the one who's taken the wrath of God in their place. That's why Paul would write in the book of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's literally nothing to fear. Now, there is a wrath for those that are not in Christ. But for this group, they are not resting in their good works. They're not thinking like that they're overly impressive. It's just, just a reminder. Paul is saying, like, you are people who, who know this truth, and it's being embodied in your life. And ultimately, what led to that is this moving. They were going in one direction, and he says they repented. They turned from the idols. And so, friends, we've talked about this numerous times, but I think we got to keep coming back to this, that that idea in the ancient world and in this Greco-Roman city that was Thessalonica, there literally would have been, similar to when Paul later on goes into Athens and he would see that the city is full of idols. You would have actually seen carvings made out of wood and stone and those things and people sacrificing. And there would have been temples dedicated to the various Greco-Roman gods. And there would have been things set up to worship the Caesar who was viewed as a god and this sort of emperor cult. Like all of those things would have been happening. And if we could be transported back then and dropped into that time, we would have, I think we'd have this feeling like in our gut, we'd be like, oh, just the idolatry. And yet, if they could be transported from their time to where we are, they may not see the Greco-Roman temples. They may not see idols carved out of wood and stone, but do not be deceived. Let's not kid ourselves that they wouldn't see the rampant idolatry that is present here, where we sacrifice so many things, be it for relationships or career, status, approval, our own comfort, right? Acquiring power, like all of these things in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things. They're gifts from God, but we get consumed. What are the things that consume us? What are the things that we're living for? Are we not only one time, but are we repeatedly turning from the idols and trusting in the finished work of Jesus? Because if we're continuing to try and rest in the things and our achievements and things of this world, it will ultimately, it will crumble, it will not satisfy now, I don't know if you are aware of this, but um, I was having a conversation actually this week with somebody, and I was trying to, 
I was trying to set the context for like what date something had happened. And I literally, here's, here's what I said in, the, in this conversation. I said, ah, uh, let's see here. It was, um, oh, it was, it was Taylor Swift week, all right? Um, and they knew immediately what I meant um, because they knew that she had come to Tampa and did three nights of, of shows, right? And I'm guessing, show of hands, come on, how many, knew people, how many people knew Taylor Swift was in, in Tampa? Yes? All right, a few of you. Okay, thank you. The rest of you are probably lying. Anyway, um, <laughs> and so... Uh, my, our two daughters, Heather and I, uh, were able to secure uh, some tickets, uh, thanks to some friends here finding connections and buying tickets from random people we don't know, but it all worked out in the end. Um, and so they got to travel and they got to go uh, to that show. Um, and if they were here this morning to tell you, I think they would literally say it was, it was the greatest night of our lives, right? I mean, like, and I'm not joking. Um, and I, they, would, they would say that. Um, and so they went to the Thursday night show. Now, Friday, our younger daughter uh, w- was home um, and was actually kind of in this, this mode of just like, I wish I was at the Friday night show. I mean, just like, like, just like, just so like kind of longing to be there, all right? And so we didn't really have any big plans and we just made some like, you know, pizzas at home and stuff. Um, and we're trying to figure out something to, to watch. Um, and we ended up, uh, and I will be the one that would claim this, I was like, hey, what if we watch the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix, Miss Americana, right? Let's do a little bit of, uh, we can still kind of keep you in that Taylor Swift mode, all right? Um, and like, okay, let's do that. And then if you're like, oh, how'd you know about that? Well, it's because I've watched it before by myself. Um, <laughs> not lying, all right? So, um, and so we're like, all right, let's watch this, uh, this documentary. Um, and uh, hey, I, I was super jealous of my girls. I was like, you go rejoice with those who rejoice. But inside, man, a lot of envy. But anyway, um, as we were watching this, and it was, this is not, this is, I think there's an insight that took place in some of the language that was, that was being used. And this is not to uh, cast a stone and be like, yeah, look, look at her and look at it like in a bad way, but more of like, some language that reveals about how deeply unsatisfying even the successes of this world can be. And she begins sharing very openly and vulnerably of this time where she began to trend on Twitter, but for kind of all the reasons you don't want to trend on Twitter, and people literally wanting nothing to do with her, kind of saying, I think it was like hashtag the Taylor Swift party is over or something along those lines. And to know that there are literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world that are caught up in this thing. I mean, I think it would make anybody just want to like crawl into a hole, right? And here is what a portion of what she said in this. Now, hear the language here. Hear, hear the heart. This begins, it's not like she came out and spoke of idolatry, but it gets to the heart of what is, we find so captivating in this world and how deeply unsatisfying it is, even if we get what we think we've always wanted. And so she says this, when people decided I was wicked and evil and conniving and not a good person, that was the one that I couldn't really bounce back from because my whole life was centered around it. Whole life centered around it. I have a particular image. I'm a good person. She says, we're people, speaking now of like artists, musicians, right, the kind of work she does, we're people who got into this line of work because we wanted people to like us, because we are intrinsically insecure, because we like the sound of people clapping, because it made us forget how much we feel like we're not good enough. And I've been doing this for 15 years, and it's just, I'm tired of it. That, my friends, gets at the heart of what is true 
for every single one of us, regardless of the success or whatever it looks like in our life or the things that we pursue. There is this part of the human heart that wants to be known, and we have an image that we're trying to curate. And when somebody doesn't view us that way, whether they're right or wrong, like it devastates us. And when we don't get the applause that was driving us, we're compelled to like, well, we got to double down. We got to do more. And it becomes this exhausting place of I've got to achieve. And Jesus is inviting us. No, will you receive from me? Will you actually rest? You are walking in a particular direction. Will you turn? Will you repent from your idols? And so we need to ask ourselves, like, what is it that you're living for? What is that thing? What are those things? And it's not to say I'm going to swear those things off and I'm not going to, it's no, how do I have those things rightly oriented so that what I'm worshiping is Jesus. I'm celebrating the gospel. I'm celebrating the new identity. And that allows me then to do my work and to, to be in relationship and to, to be, you know, get into your creative endeavors or enjoy your recreation or your travel. All of those things though, not from a place of I've got to prove, but because I've already, I'm receiving the love of God and now I can actually enjoy those things. And the only way that's possible, look with me at verses four to five, certainly more time we're spending in this first section, but look at verses four to five. What makes this possible? Paul started out, right? The gospel came to you. And look at in more detail how this power is described. This is what brings transformation is when we rest in these things, when we know that there's a love that God has for us, he says, for we know, and the language here is my brothers and sisters. He's like, we're a family. We're in this together. We can't get rid of one another. He's like, my brothers and sisters, loved by God. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. Like, just ask you, do you actually know that? Look no further than the cross of Jesus to see the love that the Father has that he would send his son. See Jesus bleeding and dying for you, for, for me, in our place. So he can form a people for himself. He has chosen you. This is not meant to puff us up. This is not meant to breed arrogance. If you ever look at that doctrine of God's election, his choosing, predestination, all things I think the Bible actually teaches, and yet that leads to arrogance, you've totally misunderstood it. It is meant to humble us, to say to us, listen, oh my goodness, I don't deserve any of this. God says he chooses the foolish and the weak. So if you're like, yeah, he chose me. It's like, yeah, he chose you because you're the worst, right? And so am I. And so praise God for his grace and his mercy. It should not lead to arrogance, but it should birth in us a humble confidence. Like he's got us. I don't think you can escape this doctrine. Like it's, it's throughout the scriptures, but it is not meant to lead to this arrogance. It's meant to remind us of his grace and his mercy. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Friends, it doesn't come just as these lists of doctrinal statements. He's reminding this church, oh, it came in power. It brings transformation. Be reminded of your story. If you're here this morning in Christ, like you were dead. I was dead and we've been made alive. It's a miracle that's taken place. Praise God for that. It comes in 
power. God is the active agent. God is the one that's at work. What Paul is reminding them is like, you didn't do any of this. You didn't make yourself faithful and hopeful and loving and all of that. No, God has done it. It's like C.S. Lewis said this great quote out of Mere Christianity where he's talking about how God is at work. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drain right. and He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Have you been in that spot? Are you in that spot right now where you're like, what in the world is he up to? This is incredibly painful. I did not sign up for this. And yet, look, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. This is the story we're part of. This is what Paul is reminding them in Thessalonica as we're being reminded. Friends, this is this resurrection story we get to be part of. As Romans 1 verse 16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would we be ashamed of the only thing that we can actually hope in? Not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the only hope we have. It's the objective reality of what Jesus has done and it's accomplished. And so from there, when we understand it's this gospel power that fuels it, we'll close with this, this gospel gossip, all right? Verses eight to nine says it this way. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That's pretty remarkable, right? Paul's like, I was just about to tell somebody this and they already knew. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. That word sounded forth. It's this, this word, this exegeo, this Greek word. That, that's the only place in the Bible it's used. And I don't know that this image even quite captures it. You can hear where we get like our word like echo, reverberations, like this resounding. It's like, oh, the story's being told. The story's going forth. It's like this loud note, and it's just boom, and it's, it's reverberating. Imagine, friends, talking about a healthy, genuine church. As we begin to see through, no, it's not because we're amazing or we're doing this, but people that are just so caught up in like, look what God has done, that the echo, the reverberations, the sound, it just echoes. And it goes out into your workplace, in your neighborhood, your family, your friends, your social networks, all of those. And it begins to tell the story of how God is at work. This is why John Stott would say this. There is an important lesson to learn here. He says, we should harness to the service of the gospel every modern medium of communication which is available to to us. Nevertheless, there is another way. It is very simple. It's not expensive. It costs precisely nothing. We might call it holy gossip. Is the excited transmission from mouth to mouth of the impact which the good news is making on people? Have you heard uh, what has happened to so-and-so? Did you know that such and such a person has come to believe in God and has been completely transformed? Something extraordinary is going on in Thessalonica. A new society is coming into being with new values and standards characterized by faith, love, and hope. So friends, we want to keep telling some holy gossip stories, some gospel gossip some resounding stories of how the resurrection continues to be at work. And so if you would, 
I'm gonna, we're going to put a, a video up on the screen now. Be encouraged. Telling stories from our community, not to make much of the people who are telling their stories, but to make much of Jesus and his gospel, and it's going forth, and it's continuing to play out. May we be a holy gospel-gossiping community. And so let's watch this now, and let's celebrate and rejoice together. Hi, my name's Kyle, and this is my resurrection story. I was um, born in America, but I grew up overseas in Japan. Uh, my parents were missionaries over there, so shout out to mom and dad. My parents did sports ministry, uh, which I thought was pretty awesome, so I kind of grew up um, you know, in Christian circles, um, you know, went to church, went to a Christian school, family was Christian and all that. So I was, you know, I had a lot of knowledge um, about the gospel, who Jesus was, but it really was for a long time, just had knowledge for me. The summer before high school, I went to a Christian camp. Um, I didn't really want to go to the camp because it was Christian and it wasn't like, I guess maybe the cool thing to do. Um, but my parents wanted me to go and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to high school, new friends, this would be good for me to, more of a social thing for me to do. During one of the first of worst obsessions, um, I just really experienced the Holy Spirit. Um, I felt God reaching out to me, and it's really hard to explain, um, but it felt like my eyes were opened up in a spiritual sense. Um, I could really feel God sense, you know, things that I knew in my head. Um, I was starting to understand them more at a heart level. It was definitely an experience that I can look back on and say, you know, I didn't do anything. I was just there. I was there for probably the wrong reasons, um, just trying to make friends and all that. But God used that time um, to open up my heart to see, to see Him, to see who He was, to see what He um, wants to do in my life. And so I can, you know, that's just a testimony to um, the grace and truth and mercy of God. So I'm very thankful to be able to have had that experience, um, I can look back on that and say, yeah, you know, God, God is real. Like, I know from that moment on that um, I couldn't ever reject that truth without um, lying to myself. There's still ups and downs to go through, um, but I'm thankful to have that experience, to have, um, I guess, a realness that I can look back on. I'm very thankful to have people in my life that can continue to remind me of those same um, the same gospel truths that have been in my life. And so I have, you know, my wife, um, she's been a big part of that. And you know, staying accountable, continue to grow in that. And then also a friend and family that always, you know, challenged me, um, encouraged me, um, church community, just to be able to pray for each other and spend time in the work together. Well, let's hear for Kyle. I'm so thankful for his willingness to tell the story as we continue throughout this series. We'll be telling other stories, knowing that it's so helpful just to hear and to, to relate to particular aspects. And I love how he just said, there was this power. There's this work of the Holy Spirit. And so friends, as we uh, continue in worship now, here's what I want to invite you to do. We're going to take some time um, just in response. Uh, I want to invite you for just a, a short time of prayer right now. Um, I'll close us out in a moment. But if you would bow your heads and just 
take some time silently and think through this, Lord, what is it that I need to repent of? Ask the Holy Spirit to bring that to mind, to remember the gospel. And then to take some time to request that, like, that we would be a kind of community where the gospel would sound forth. May we be part of seeing more resurrection stories. So take some time quietly right now, and let's just pray to the Lord. And gracious God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you that there is good news to celebrate. And we ask that it would continue to be at work to transform us individually and collectively as a church. Lord, we want to surrender to your will. We want to operate not by sight, but by faith. We want to be in the wheelbarrow. We want to be fully just enveloped by, by you and committed to your purposes. And we can't do that in our own strength. We need the enabling and empowering work of you, Holy Spirit. And so would you, would you guide us, strengthen us, empower us? And God, would you see fit to, to use us in whatever ways you would to advance your kingdom, to see your, your mission go forward, so there'd be more worship of you? And so, God, we boldly we ask for that, and not for the name of cross points, uh, not that any of us can feel good at, or feel like, oh, look what we've done, but that we would simply just be in awe of the ways that you're at work, and that we would be able to just stand back and marvel at your grace, your kindness, your goodness. And so would you work for your glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for our just deep gladness and joy? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.